Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. And I'm Shireen Hamza. Today we're joined by Dr. Özlem Gülin Dağlu, who finished her PhD at University of Montreal in the Department of Art History and Cinematographic Studies last year. Özlem, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. We'll be speaking about one of the most interesting and also most misunderstood artists of the early 20th century, Mihri Rasim. Born in Istanbul in 1886, she was prominent in the founding of the School of Fine Arts for Girls there in 1914. After the founding of the Turkish Republic, she painted a famous portrait of Mustafa Kemal, and then she left Turkey and spent much of the rest of her life in the United States. As we discuss her life, we'll discuss how her art intersected and diverged from the politics of the day, and how that has caused her to be so misunderstood. So Özlem, tell us about where Mehri Rasim comes from. What kind of a family was she born to? She comes from a very privileged background. Her father was teaching and he was director of the Imperial Medical School and her mother, she was affiliated with the Imperial Ottoman family. So her relations with uh, the Ottoman Imperial family date back to Sultan Abdulaziz and the 1850s. And this is how she got to learn the basics of painting. Because, you know, uh, at that time in elite families, it was very common for uh, young girls and young boys also to learn the basics of teach the painting and music and uh, learning different European languages such as Italian, French and uh, English that she really spoke well, Mihrilasim, by the way. So she learned the basics of painting from her governess, as it was common amongst the elite families in Istanbul. She was um, regularly visiting her family members in Yildiz, in the Yildiz Palace. And the one, at one time, she um, offered her painting a portrait to the Sultan himself. The Sultan Abdulhamid, who really liked and appreciated the portrait, referred her to his court painter, Fausto Zonaro, and she studied with him between 1896 and 1907 when she left Istanbul for Rome. So you said that it was pretty common at the time for elite families to educate their children mm -hmm. in painting. Sure. Um, typically, she's presented as kind of an iconoclast figure by pursuing painting was there a point where she sort of crossed the line she definitely crossed many 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 lines um yes of course girls were thought basics of painting but they they didn't translate this into being a painter and being a painter who made a living out of you know your art her art. She made a living out of her art. She painted for the elite and she worked for the elite and she was, of course, a member of the elite. And, and so the nature of, of her early paintings, what, what kinds of things was she, she focused on? She did many, many portraits of her family members. For instance, her cousin Leila Achbay in her memoir says that she painted all the family members, but that unfortunately there is no painting, no painting of her family members survived. So... Yeah, we don't know what she did. There is a, one painting kept at Topkapı Palace Museum ar Archives, I think. Um, and it's her autoportrait, self-portrait. Ottoman elites were uh, huge consumers of uh, <laughs> works of art and most notably por portrait painting. They were decorating their houses 
like in Europe, actually, like in Europe at the same time, it was meant to um, indicate their high social status and it was meant to indicate their genealogy. So Rasim painted for the elite and she came from the elite, but she used her paintings to make a connection, a social connection, like every portrait painter. She showed what she could do and she kind of used it as an advertisement, if, you, if I dare say. So where we left off in the story... She is leaving Empire. to Rome. Okay, so <laughs> she, she goes to Rome. That's where she's going. We're in 1907, and okay. she, around 1907, and she's leaving to Rome. She left for Rome in 1907, around 1907, when it was highly difficult for an Ottoman woman to walk alone on in Istanbul streets. But she decided, and she did go to Rome with the help of uh, Irene Barrer, which uh, she was the uh, wife of Camille Barrer, the uh, French uh, consul to uh, Rome. So she stayed in Rome, and then from Rome, she went to Paris, and uh, she received a medal from the École des Beaux-Arts. And uh, in her apartment, she she gathered uh, Ottoman intellectuals, prominent painters, writers, and uh, she she had a salon in Paris. And so Paris is really a hotbed for organizing at the time among political activists. Um, exactly. Who, who had to leave the Ottoman Empire or were exiled in some way. And so are, are these art worlds and political worlds intersecting in this salon? In her case, yes, of course, because she was a young Turk painter. So in Paris, when she was in Paris, she was uh, frequently visiting and she made portraits of young Turks. So, of course, this is right before the Committee of Union and Progress is, yes. is going to come to power in Istanbul in, in 1908. Um, the uh, Constitution is going to be reinstated. Parliament is going to be reinstated. So this is really on the verge of, of huge changes. Exactly. Uh, and she's at the center of this. In, in yes, well, she is literally at the center of it because, um, first of all, she got acquainted with Young Turk ideals. She embraced Young Turk ideals because her father, he was teaching at the medical school and it was a bastion of Young Turks, you know, the young Turks, students who was against the Hamidian regime, they were there. And And, and who were not all necessarily Turks, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So she was really at a very young age acquainted and uh, embraced young Turk ideals. And I also use this expression for its double reference. Yes, of course, she supported overtly the young Turks, but also because she was an avant-garde woman, she was highly innovative. So I think it fits perfectly for her. Um, but in Paris, let me add that she worked, she frequented the uh, Atelier of Galipé, who was a young Turk also. Uh-huh. So it's not a random choice to mm. uh, go and uh, study with Galipé. Mm. So in she got, she gets married, she got married in uh, Paris to Mushfik Selami Bey around 1911. And then she went to Istanbul with her husband and she started teaching at Darul Muallimat, the, the school for women teachers female teachers. So she thought there, uh, she thought that between 1912 and 1913, and then... Sorry, what did she teach there? Art, uh, painting, and drawing lessons she gave. And in October 1914, she was able to establish the first fine arts academy for women in Istanbul. 
where she uh, introduced female nude courses where her students were able to draw uh, in the outdoors. She, uh, along with Hojali Riza, she took her students to Gülhane Park and near close by to Galata Tower, where her students re- literally defied the restrictions on what place on women's bodies because they were out there painting. They were expressing themselves as painters. The Ottoman art world was exclusively male until she founded the uh, first fine art school for women. Um, in this period, in this early 20th century um, moment, I'm curious about fine art schools elsewhere in the world, if they admitted women or if this was really a unique opportunity that women in Istanbul had. No, of course, women started gaining access to fine art schools, for instance, in Paris. But uh, in in France, they had to wait three (laughs) centuries. In Istanbul, it's only 31 years. Everything is relative, of course. But because uh, the Sanayi Nefised, the men's academy opened in 1883, and women's academy opened in 1914, so it's only 31 years, but still. The question I'm wondering is that why they didn't allow women into men's academy and create, uh, they created a separate school for women. I mean, you said this was such a profound challenge that she was leading in some ways by occupying public space and producing art. Was there pushback to it? Yes, they were. For instance, she asked for, uh, <laughs> she asked for uh, the permission to use ancient sculptures you know, to allow her, uh, to give her students the opportunity to draw male figures because, of course, they had access to uh, naked women. And her students went and fetched from the hammams, <laughs> uh, mostly Russian women who came to sit at the school, but, uh, well, men, new models, they couldn't really. So she asked for uh, uh, ancient sculptures, but this, this, this was highly problematic for, uh, problematic for uh, conservatives. And uh, <laughs> an inspector from the uh, education minister called her in and asked, why are you allowing uh, your students to draw naked men? And with the as she was, she answered, well, the first things first, uh, loincloth is covering what my decent ladies of the academy should not see. Even though Malik Axel, the painter Malik Axel, writes <laughs> that she never covered anything. <laughs> And second, she said, well, the, those sculptures are not more or less naked than the Pelivan, the, the combating uh, bare torso. So the inspector found her answers quite convenient, quite okay and acceptable. And the, her students continued to use uh, ancient sculptures. I just love this comparison between uh, ancient Greek or Roman art. Uh, do you know which which period it was from or well the sculptures came from the imperial archaeology museum okay and of course implicitly by using those sculptures the academy kind of you know uh, associated itself with the european artistic genealogy to compare that to pehlavan to mm-hmm. the like the you know traditional wrestler mm-hmm. it's it's really interesting comparison i guess it's one that um, they couldn't really object to 
Uh, and so <laughs> that it's was part of the Ottoman <laughs> tradition. So, you know, <laughs> she was really witty. <laughs> yeah, very clever. This school is established in 1914, mm -hmm. which is uh, an important year all around the world as the beginning of, of World War I. Uh, what happens with the school in the midst of this conflict that um, resulted in so many tragedies all around the world and in, in the Ottoman Empire? Does art continue? Does art education continue? It continued, but they changed locations from one building to another because buildings were obviously used for uh, army purposes. So it's from one building to another, but uh, the they continued, the education continued for a woman. They organized their first exhibition in 1916 where they showed nude female portraits, but um, yeah. And do we have a sense of the public reception of that? No, we don't, because my educated guess is that only their family, the students' family, came to see and came to visit the exhibition. It, was a, it wasn't a, an open to public. So who were these students who were exhibiting work in this exhibition? Um, how have you been able to learn more about their lives as well? It was pretty, um, the, the, the resources on the academy are pretty scarce and uh, there are many, many holes to fill in. But uh, for the students, I, I can name, of course, a few. Um, Nazle Jevit, for instance, Bülente Jevit's mother. All of these women were students at the academy, but most of them did not pursue an art career after they graduated from Inasanai in Efisemektebe. They chose to follow their husbands. For instance, Guzin Duran, the case of Guzin Duran is quite interesting. When John Ambekal, the, the, the artist John Ambekal, made an interview with her uh, in the 80s, she thought Bekal came to uh, talk with Cuisine Duran uh, about her husband, Fehaman Duran, and Bekal was like, no, no, I came to talk to you about your art. So she never really considered herself as an artist, artist but her husband, she was you know, following Nazla Ejivit, she didn't pursue her career. She kind of raised her kids. Many years after that, she chose to pursue her artistic career. Same thing for Farenisa Zaid. She kind of followed her husband and then, you know, gradually became an artist. So not all the women, all Mirirasim students were directly, you know, studied and have a diploma and yes, we are artists. So it's interesting to think about this constellation of students who came through this school and some of whom went back to art later in life. What's happening with Mehri Rasim's own art through these years? Sure, she continued to paint portraits for the elite in Istanbul, in Rome, and in Paris, in every city she was living. She was making connections through her social status, and she was... Uh, <laughs> Um, painting the portraits of the elites. She was a, yeah. After the First World War, when uh, the Ottoman Empire capitulated, many of her supporters, many of her young Turk supporters were in prison and she really got scared for her own security and her own life and she left again in a hurry, I should say, for Rome. This is her second Rome <laughs> visit. And then she came back in Istanbul after a short while and continued to teach at the Women's Academy 
from between 1920 and 1922. And in 1922, with her husband, Mushfiq Salami Bey, they decided to leave for Europe and got divorced there eventually. So thus far, we've talked about how, uh, in a lot of ways, she made her living by drawing the portraits of others and, and using that with great skill to move in life. But she also drew a number of self-portraits. Could you tell us a little bit about those and, and what's interesting about them? Of course, with pleasure. Apart from her one self-portrait that is kept at the Topkapı Müzesi Archivleri, Topkapı Museum Archives, all her self-portraits are veiled. She always represented herself with her veil on, even uh, for the portraits she made in Europe or in the United States. But the thing is that she wasn't crushed by the symbolic weight of her veil she used it as she wanted to as she was pleased to when we look for instance at her portrait uh, at her self-portrait she is wearing the veil the ottoman veil so she is playing with what the viewer uh, could and would see in her self-portraits See, she, she's always in control in her self-portraits. She, she has the power and she's not letting you define her. She knows what she wants. And this is it. Ermira Rasim really knew what she wanted from life. And she really pursued two main goals. She wanted to improve women's life. She, the, she wanted to give women more agency in every country she lived in, be it in, well, in Ottoman Empire, in Turkey, in uh, European countries, and in the United States. And and she wanted to be considered, in her own words, I'm quoting her, among the talented people. So yeah, she, she, she was quite a smart woman. I mean, she is looking directly at you and you have no way of escaping her. She is telling you, I am here, the artist is present. <laughs> so what's interesting about how you describe her in, in these self-portraits is that she's so in control. And one of the things that's striking about the Turkish Republic at this time is that in a lot of ways, they use women's rights as a way of differentiating exactly. with, with the Ottoman period. She is an ambiguous artist. She also, with the new Turkish Republic, tried to make connection with the Kemalists. She offered, she was invited to uh, Chankaya. She offered uh, Mustafa Kemal himself his portrait, but she didn't quite fit into their agenda as well because she represented Ottoman aristocracy, even though they recycled some Ottoman aristocrats into their diplomacy. She represented, most notably, pre-Republican feminism which, of course, couldn't exist. So she wasn't that useful for this new regime that's claiming to create a break from the past. And, and maybe, I'm not sure if these are the words we'd want to use, but she represented progress before the Turkish Republic. Exactly. But the Turkish Republic wanted to offer Turkish women emancipation. But as we know now, the women 
claimed and obtained uh, rights, basic rights. They demanded rights to, for instance, attend uh, university classes. They obtained it. They, she demanded, Mirirasim demanded, Fine Arts Academy, she obtained it. So she left to Europe with her husband, Mushfik Selami Bey. They traveled a bit in Europe, and around 1922 and 1923, they divorced. Mushfik Selami returned to Istanbul. Mirirasim stayed there, and she lived uh, on and off in Italy, where she was acquainted with certain fascist milieus. She made the portrait of Gabriele Tanunzio, Benito Mussolini. <laughs> wow. Yes. In 24, she went back to uh, Turkey. She went to Chankaya, offered Kemal his portrait. And then after, she never, ever returned to Turkey. In 27, in 1927, she chose to live in the United States. And uh, it was already difficult. We think it's difficult right now, but it was already difficult in the 1920s to immigrate into the U.S. And she chose to immigrate to the U.S., in 1927. So the legend wants that she was a marginal artist. She was a bohemian artist who, you know, kind of suffered her own ambition and she tragically died in New York. But that's not true. That's really not true. I mean, she was friends and with the most renowned people, um, amongst them Eleanor Roosevelt. She wasn't miserable. Yeah, it, this um, this this story that uh, you're gesturing to about how she's known and how she's famous, um, it's really striking after hearing this history of her life in which she's born into an elite family and studies painting and music from such a young age. And that's not to diminish the innovative uh, and, as you say, avant-garde position that she's had. But I'm very curious about how um, her you know, her status as this promoter of women's rights, as a very stylistically interesting painter, how this carried over into her new settings in New York. Well, let's start with the beginning. In New York, she arrived in New York in 27. She left to Chicago and then came back to New York, organized an exhibition It's in 28. It's the first exhibition that a Turkish woman organized in New York, the, the Turkish female painter organized in New York. Where was it? It was at the Georges de Mazirov Art Gallery, a Russian aristocrats art gallery. So you see, she always kept her connections. How did she make these connections with everyone from Eleanor Roosevelt to Mussolini to Ataturk? Like where? I mean, I mean, what's I the mean, secret? I didn't name uh, Paul von Hindenburg, Woodrow <laughs> Wilson, <laughs> Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison. Yeah, yeah. The first exhibition, of course, she uh, she exhibited her most interesting works. Uh, the names I just mentioned. And the legend wants that she was after that, oh, so poor and so marginalized. Well, of course, uh, in the 1930s, she had very difficult times. But I think that even Rockefeller thought that it was difficult times in 1930s. It was, she was in New York as an immigrant woman, artist, working, trying to make a living. And it was just after the economic crash that devastated the whole world. So yes, it was difficult times for Mihri Rasim too. But afterward, she did well. She lived 
around the Central Park in very high-end locations. I found her exact address and even her phone numbers. That's very interesting. <laughs> in New York's phone books, she changes sometimes her name. She becomes Mihri Rasim or Mihri Durasim Pasha or, you know, she kind of, she, she really uses her uh, social status. Uh, so here's an art question. Sure. I don't know much about art. That's also a confession. Is portraiture, is that sort of an evergreen kind of art? Are, are rich and powerful people always wanting portraits to be done? Because it seems to me that the 20s and the 30s are times where I think of cubism. It's times where I think of the Turkish state sending artists out to the villages to paint the peasants. And it seems like, in a way, Mehri Rasim is painting the counter-revolution? Mihri, I'm not sure if that's the word we want yeah, to use. Yeah, I but. understand what you mean. Mihri Rasim was an avant-garde woman by her lifestyle, but her art was not that much avant-garde. She was a portrait painter, and portraiture is used to assert one's power. She liked power, and she had power, and she drew power. Right. She was drawn to powerful men. Wilson, Roosevelt, Edison, era-defining men. But it's it's interesting because it's subversive too, right? Because she's and men, it's men, not women. She's playing along with their need to have this portrait that projects their power, mm-hmm. and then she's using that for her own power. Exactly, right? exactly. Her words describe her perfectly. She wanted to be considered amongst the talented people. That's what she wanted, and her art was a means to obtain it. And she did it. Just thinking about the art scene in New York at this time, the first thing that comes to mind is the Harlem Renaissance. I'm just curious if uh, she bumped shoulders with any of those amazing artists. She was teaching in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. So she was there. She was in the middle of it. What? (laughs) She was, yeah, exactly. During the Harlem Renaissance in Harlem. I mean, how close can you get? to that. (laughs) Did she comment at all on the kind of artistic and political movement? She was very involved politically. Hmm. She, for instance, uh, was involved with the League of Women Voters that counted Eleanor Roosevelt as its member. She frequented Mary and Catherine Dreyer, the Dreyer sisters. She was acquainted with Frances Keller, a social activist. So she was really working for a woman's right and, for instance, she gave a lecture in 38 at the Wellington Hotel about the emancipation of Turkish women. Newspaper articles were published about her from uh, the smallest city in Iowa to Los Angeles to Chicago to big publishers like Washington Post, uh, New York Times. She was really a prolific and prominent painter, not a tragically (laughs) marginalized and, you know, powerless, miserable painter. So you've talked a little bit about this myth of her being marginalized and poor, and we have a sense of how you're uh, arguing against that. But I wonder if you could talk about the ways she's been remembered. I mean, surely that's one way she's been remembered, but how have different political projects tried to enlist her? Why Why is she such an attractive figure, even though we know so little about her? Or is it because we know so little about her? Out of the few information we had on her, a fable, a legend was created. A legend that, yes, she tried so hard, but then she finished quite badly. This legend was created in the 80s in Turkey, where 
feminism was coming up, where feminism was questioning and criticizing the Republican modernization project, where they were asking questions about the liberation of women. And it's very interesting that it's at the very same time that this legend of Mihri Rasim, a woman who did well, who did it, <laughs> was undermined and tried to be diminished. You know, her major contributions to art history and to the advancement and the improvement of women's conditions. So I'm curious how how it is that her story was unattractive to It is fascinating because even feminist art historians recycled that story, recycled that legend. They were trying to prove that, well, yes, she tried and she tried so hard, but unfortunately she didn't succeed. But by doing so, they were just, you know, contributing to the legend. Right. So so their, so their version of the story is that we, we need to fight because even the people, you know, got the furthest weren't able to make it and kind of anybody who made it, not even in the Republican era, but before the Republican era, was unacceptable to their activist goals. Is that why? In part, in part, it could explain her absence from historiography. But also we should mention that uh, women artists who worked before the 1950s are highly absent from historiography. It's not only Mihri Sim's case. I mean, yes, Mihri Rasim is an important case, and the other women are very important too. But I mean, still to date, women artists who worked and lived before the 1950s are um, major absentees from historiography. The work on Mihri Rasim, you know why it's so interesting and so pertinent? Because right now we are in the midst, I mean, worldwide, globally, in the midst of, you know, identity questions and immigration, and she's kind of, you know, in the middle of it. We've talked a lot about the legends associated with Mihri Rasim, and I think you've shown us how, in many ways, reality was more interesting than the legend. Thank you so much for joining us, Oslem. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. What a pleasure. We'll have a bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, as well as suggestions for related podcasts on questions of visual sources and also gender. We also encourage you to join us on Facebook, where we have over 30,000 followers. That's it for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care.